Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Church history, would you read church history and read accounts of the saints of the past and uh, you you quickly discover that the history of the church is full of people who have been horrible sinners, reprobates. <laughs> That's right, all of us, right? To one degree or another. The church, God, God changes people miraculously and no one is beyond his power and his ability to change for his glory. And so people have come to Christ from every walk of life, and more particularly, people who've been horrible sinners. And this morning we're going to look at uh, the most famous account of the conversion of, of the worst sinner by his own testimony. He was the worst sinner in the history of the church. And it's actually not a, a, an account of conversion as much as it is an account of surrender. That's a much more apropos term. Would you agree? It's easy. Conversion is kind of a polite word. Surrender has much more impetus to it. I surrender, Lord. I surrender. When you surrender your will and you surrender your life, you don't hang on to anything else. You can become a convert, but that may imply some other things. So we're going to look at the surrender of Saul of Tarsus, and he will become Paul the Apostle. So look with me, chapter 9. We're going to just read the first 19 verses together. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, 
This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, at the end of chapter 8, we're told that Philip was ministering all through Samaria and up into Caesarea. So Philip's got this flourishing ministry going on. All, all kinds of exciting things are happening. Meanwhile, we're told that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's still doing it. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says he's still doing it. So here's, here's this juxtaposition, if you will, of, of, of Philip's ministry going on in up in Jerusalem. Saul is still breathing out murderous threats. You hearken back to chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 3, and Luke writes this, and he says, Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death, and on that day great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And in verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So you see in one area, just havoc is happening. Saul is tearing up the church. And while in Samaria, revival is happening. Isn't that awesome? You see that the comparison between the two? Now, even though Stephen has been, has been killed, and after his death, the Jewish believers are, are fleeing Jerusalem. They're fleeing from Saul's persecution. And Saul saw that it was absolutely necessary to continue that persecution to the places where these people had fled, and most notably to Damascus. Now, Damascus was an interesting situation because Damascus was a major city in uh, in Arabia there, and it was on the, all the trade routes throughout the Roman Empire passed through Damascus. So Paul, it's absolutely necessary in his mind that he get to Damascus because if he can stamp out this way, if he can stamp out this, this sect of Judaism, this heretical sect, then he can prevent, almost single-handedly, he can prevent Christianity from spreading through the Roman Empire. So Damascus is absolutely critical to his strategy. That's why uh, he wants to get there in all fervor. And Damascus is about 175 miles from Jerusalem. So he's got a long walk to get there. Later on in Romans, when he becomes a believer, Rome becomes strategic to his methodology for his missions because he knows Rome being the center of the Roman Empire, all roads lead to Rome, in Christianity, if he can make sure that Christianity is firmly entrenched in Rome, the Roman Empire will be evangelized. So his thinking is just the same, except it's opposite. 
So he's intent on getting to Damascus. He is violent. He is absolutely violent. Why do you suppose he's so violent? Is he by nature a violent man? I don't think so. But he's passionate to stamp out this sect. Remember, Israel at this particular point in time, they were living with an expectation that the Messiah was coming. If you go back to John's Gospel in chapter 3, remember the interview between Nicodemus and Jesus? Nicodemus was wanting to know, are you the one we're waiting for? He says, we know, we know that your messengers come from God because no one could do the things you're, you're doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus is, has a heightened sense, and Israel has a heightened sense that the Messiah would, is, was coming from all the prophets. And indeed, he had come in the person of Jesus. And so the Jews are all living at this time. Saul we're told, is a highly religious Jew. He was a Pharisee. And he is very, very zealous that the nothing inhibit the Messiah, Messianic age from coming in and being fulfilled. One of the prerequisites for the Messianic age to be fulfilled was that the uh, Mosaic law be fulfilled perfectly. And these followers of the way were viewed as heretics. They were viewed as disregarding the Mosaic law, disregarding the temple and all the temple practices. Later on, Paul himself would be accused of these very things, and he would be being chased and ultimately killed as a result of that. So he's very, very zealous, and he he could validate his, his uh, actions against the Christians by remembering back in the Old Testament. There's, a, there's a, a chapter, Numbers chapter 25, and we won't read it, but I'll just give you the reference. Numbers chapter 25, the Israelites were being particularly rebellious and they were going after pagan gods because they were going after pagan women, the men were. And they're intermarrying. And Moses, God told Moses, you take the leaders and you kill all these people who've done that. And so this may have been in the back of Saul's mind that, you know, God justifies this to cleanse his people. There was one man by the name of Phineas who was particularly uh, praised by God because he went after a man who actually brought one of these pagan women into his own house, into his own tent, and... Phineas went in there and drove a spear through him and the woman and killed him. And then later in that passage, God commends him for doing that. So you might understand Saul knowing the scriptures and finding some measure of justification in his severe persecution of the Christians. Maybe even God would commend him and say, well done for your work against these people. So he's sincere. He is passionate. He wants to... to, to, to cleanse Judaism of this sect of these crazy, crazy people. So he's hot on the trail. He's hot on the trail of these believers who have fled to Damascus. In chapter 26, by the way, we just read Luke's account of Paul's surrender. And in chapter 22 of Acts and chapter 26 of Acts, 
Paul gives his own testimony about that day and about his surrender to the Lord Jesus. And so I encourage you to read those because they do include some details that Luke doesn't necessarily include. So in Acts chapter 26, Paul testifies to the fierceness of his attack. Watch this. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. Can you, do, you see, do you sense the passion in him? My obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And then he talks about his journey to Jerusalem. Aren't you glad he went to Jerusalem? Oh, yes, absolutely. In chapter 9, verse 12, Christians are called followers of the way. This was a whole new way of living. And you recall that in John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way. And so they're called followers of the way. Saul's surrender to Jesus begins in verse 3 of chapter 9. He and his companions are on their way to Damascus. They are suddenly stopped in their tracks. In Acts chapter 26, verse 14, they all are caused to fall to the ground. Here they are. They are fierce. They're on their way to Damascus. And boom, before they know it, they're on the ground. What happened? Did they trip over something? No, no. How did they fall on the ground? What happened, do you think? God stopped them. God intervened. God initiates. God reached out. Remember last week, the Ethiopian and Philip? How do you think those guys got together? Was somebody behind the scenes engineering? Yeah, God. God is always working. He is always working. You may not see him. You may not sense him. You may not feel him. You may not hear him. He is always at work to bring about his purposes. So here these guys are. They're on their way to Damascus, and they're, they're just hot to get after these believers, these followers of the way. And before they know it, they're on the ground. God has stopped them dead in their tracks. God must take the initiative every single time. He must take the initiative in reaching out to sinners since we as unbelievers, by nature, we're told, we are objects of wrath. We are dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions. We cannot, we will not of our own volition reach out to God. We're dead. We're absolutely dead. Dead to God, alive to sin. So God has to do something. How many of you are glad that God loves his creation, loves, loves even sinners? So he takes initiative. He reaches out to us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, listen, Paul writes this later on. He says, 
In this way, when you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature, what? Objects of wrath. Because, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen? Amen. So God takes initiative. He takes initiative with Saul and his companions. I submit to you, we cannot come to God on our own. We will not come to God. If you ask people at random, say, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. And you have no real sense that they're an actual believer, but they say, I believe in God. I always ask them, I said, well, tell me about the God you believe in. What's that God like? Well, you know, God. God, you know, the big guy. Well, what's the big guy like? Most people can't explain. They believe in, they, even if they worship, they do so. They believe in a God of their own construct, a God of their own design, a God who won't make too many demands on them. but they can't describe him. Can we describe our God? Yeah. Point right to Jesus, huh? He is the exact representation of God. That's what the Bible tells us. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. There is no one righteous. But what about me? What about me? No, not even one. Not even you. There's always going to be somebody who's going to object. People claim their own righteousness, don't they? Their own self-righteousness. But I'm a good. And they object strenuously. But I'm a good person. I don't rape, pillage, and plunder. You're not perfect. There is no one righteous, absolutely righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God the God of the Bible. You may seek a God of your own construct, but this, we're talking about the God of the Bible. This is the truth. You can't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ unless you understand that and know that and let those verses come crashing in on your mind and your heart. Does that make sense? All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. We're all in the same boat as unbelievers. We're all lost. We're all under God's wrath. And God must reach out to us. Listen to Paul's own testimony to Titus in Titus chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Can anybody relate to that passage at all? Just a few of you. Okay, good. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
These are cardinal truths. These are fundamentals of the faith, but we need to be reminded of them all the time. Why? Because we live every day in a world that requires us to perform to be accepted. Isn't that true? If we're not performing, we're not acceptable. And very often we lose sight of the fact that, that we don't have to perform to be accepted. We perform because we are accepted in Christ. Not because and for our own selves, simply because we have identified with Jesus Christ, because we've been convicted that we need him. We need this great physician to come into our life and to heal us. Can I hear an amen on that? That's right. All right. Verse 4 of our passage, Saul is on the ground. He's been knocked to the ground. He hears a, a statement. What statement does he hear? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's as if Jesus was saying, I could destroy you in a heartbeat. What have I done to you? I died for you. Though Saul thought he was persecuting Christians, who was he really persecuting? He's persecuting the Lord. Jesus said, They'll hate you because they hated me first. We're identified with Jesus Christ. So we don't get defensive. We don't argue. We don't fight back because we know it's not us. It's him that's being persecuted. And so Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those who go to the bad place go there ultimately because of the rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. John 3.16. What's that verse say? How many know it? God so what? Love the world. He didn't hate the world. He loves the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In 2 Peter 3.9 Peter says, God is not slow according to his promises, but he is patient. Oh, I am so glad. So glad. I thank him every day for his patience and his grace and his kindness and his mercy to me. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to what? Repentance. And so he's waiting drawing people, sending us out into the world with good news, calling people to repentance. People, God is not sending people to hell. God is rescuing people from hell. We are conceived in sin, David says. We are hell bound from the very get-go. We are rebels from the get-go, from the very beginning. You all know the proverbial reality of little, little kids, little children, as they start to grow up and they start learning words. What's the first word they learn? No. I turned to my wife one day. My granddaughter just stood there, this little bitty little thing, just... The day before, just the cutest, sweetest little thing. Next day, she's standing there going, no. 
I said, did you hear that? No. It's in our nature to be defiant and rebellious. No. Oh, my gosh. Even those who don't persecute Christians, but simply live apart from Jesus, are as guilty of crimes against him as Saul was. As Saul himself would later say in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be upon him. I submit to you, the crime above all crimes for which people will be eternally damned is simply to refuse to believe in, to love, and to follow Jesus. You have to ask yourself, do I believe in Jesus? And what does that mean? Do I love him? And am I following him? It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. Do I love him? And love him so much that I'm devoted and I follow him. Am I making sense? Now, verse 5 of our text in Acts chapter 9. How does Saul respond to Jesus' statement, why are you persecuting me? What does Saul say? Who are you, Lord? Now, some commentators say that that word Lord could be translated sir. So it's like Paul saying, who are you, sir? Do you think that Saul had no idea why he was on the ground? I mean, contextualize all this. He's on his way to Damascus. Who's he persecuting? Christians in his mind, but he's really persecuting Jesus. He is going to stamp out this name of Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's on the ground. What would you think? You hear a voice. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, who are you? <laughs> it's not rocket science to put this together. I mean, Saul's a pretty bright guy. He's probably one of the most well-educated Jews in Israel at that point of time. Do you suppose that anywhere along the way he'd heard the gospel? Remember when Stephen was preaching and, and, and giving his testimony and preaching the gospel before the Sanhedrin, Saul was right there, heard the whole thing. I wonder if Saul even debated Stephen at some point. It's possible. So I think that it's hard, it's not hard to believe that he already had the answer to his own question. Who are you, Lord? I think he knew. But then it's confirmed to him. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Luke doesn't include this, but Jesus, or uh, Saul includes it, Paul includes it later in his testimony in chapter 26 of Acts. It's interesting. Jesus says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Whoa, what are goads? What are goads? They're sharp, pointed objects, pointed sticks, if you will, to goad sheep and cattle and so forth to get them moving, right? 
it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Was Paul being goaded and kicking against the goads, rejecting? He knew, he knew who this was. There's no doubt in his mind, I'm sure. In fact, I believe that despite his ferocious persecutions, he was under heavy persecution, or not persecution, I'm sorry, heavy conviction by the Holy Spirit, the goads. It's the Holy Spirit's work. It's his job to what? Convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. He knew now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus wasn't dead. Jesus is alive. He knows that. And now he's met by, in, in fact, Jesus appears to him. In verse 17 of our chapter and in verse 16 of chapter 26, we're told that Jesus actually appeared to him. He saw the risen Lord. Listen to his own testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Wow. There's his testimony as Paul the Apostle. All he can do is say thank you and acknowledge God's grace and mercy to him and say and admit I was the worst sinner. In chapter 22, in his own testimony, verse 10, he says, and again, Luke doesn't include this in chapter 9, but in Saul's own testimony, he says, what shall I do, Lord? <laughs> what shall I do? Something has happened, would you agree? Something has happened to this man. He's turned around. What shall I do? What's happened to him? Surrender. You see now the surrender. I love that word surrender. It's such a powerful word. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. Now, did Saul surrender to Jesus only as his Savior or also as his Lord? Yeah. What shall I do, Lord? So many times we tell people, you need to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. And we cut it off there. <laughs> We're so anxious for somebody to confess Jesus. We say, just receive him as your Savior. No, as your Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is God. He is the Lord in verse 6, in response, Jesus says, get up and go into the city. It's time to obey me. Wow, what a turnaround. How many minutes do you think surpassed when he's on the ground 
has this interaction with Jesus. They ask him, what should I do? And Jesus says, get up, go in the city. How many minutes do you think transpired? A minute? How long does it take someone to get saved? How long does it take someone to, get, to, to surrender? Not long when you really are serious. You say, okay, I'm in, I'm in. We surrender. Up to this point, is it fair to say that Saul has been doing what he believed was best? Up to this point, would you say that Saul has been doing what he really believed God wanted him to do? What his will dictated? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Do we do what we want to do? When we want to do it? How we want to do it? Yes. But from this time on, he is going to be told what to do. He is going to be directed into what to do. God is going to tell him. He's not going to be left up to his own understanding. There's a, there's a passage in the Bible, I think it goes like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in most of your ways. And he will what? Make your path straight. Don't you love that passage? Acknowledge him in all of your way. This is something that Saul, as he becomes Paul the Apostle, will learn to acknowledge him in all of his ways. I submit to you that the Christian is one who ceases to do what he or she wants to do, leaning on their own understanding, and they begin to do what Jesus wants done. We get up every morning and say, Lord, I have my agenda for my day, but what do you want? Give me eyes to see, give me ears to hear, cause me to be attentive to what you want done today in the midst of all the stuff that I have to get done. Can the two happen together? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now we're told that Saul is blind and he had to be led into the city by his hand. How had he anticipated entering Damascus? Ferociously. He's going after these followers of Jesus. He's ferocious. He's knocked down. He gets up. He is blind. <laughs> he can't see. He's led into the city, not as he anticipated. He's led into the city by his hand. Wow, what a contrast. What a contrast. Would you agree with me? What a remarkable change of events. So we're told he's blind for three days. What do you suppose is going on for those three days? He's not eating or drinking. He's not persecuting. But he is doing one thing. What's he doing? He's praying. He would become a man of unceasing prayer. You read his letters. So what's going on during those three days as he's praying? Do you suppose he might be undergoing a complete reevaluation and a complete reconstruction of everything he believed, everything he was, and everything he did? A whole paradigm shift, if you will. He's become a new creation. Old things have passed away. He's got to start thinking new. 
He's going to be believing differently than he did before. Dramatic changes happened to him. Now, at the same time as he's spending those three days praying, undergoing this radical transformation, Jesus speaks to another man. Who's the man he speaks to? Ananias. Ananias, interestingly, means gracious. So he speaks to a man by the name of Ananias. And this is kind of reminiscent of the previous passage we studied last week of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian. Remember? Jesus says, I want you to go down to this desert road. There's, I want you to go down there. And he meets the Ethiopian. And so much similarly, here's Saul. He's in Damascus. Straight Street, by the way, that's the main thoroughfare through Damascus. So it's hard to miss. Ananias didn't know exactly where to go. So he's, Ananias is told to go and meet this man. He's told in a vision to meet this man, Saul of Tarsus. Has God ever said to you, go talk to that person? Anybody ever experienced that? Maybe you're standing in line or you're, you know, you're praying and all of a sudden God brings somebody to mind and says, go talk to that person. I was in the gym a while back and God said to me, go tell that person about me. Go tell him that I want him to come to me. I went, oh, no way. This guy was, to put it kindly, was very rough around the edges, very intimidating. So we're in the locker room, and I've been battling this. I'm struggling. We're in the locker room, and he's sitting two rows over from me on a bench in the locker room. No one's around. I'm going, I'm in my locker, I'm going, Okay, here we go. I walk over to him. I said, I have a message for you. <laughs> Those words came out of my mouth. I, I didn't know what to say. I have a message for you. What message? I said, it's a message from God. I promise you, he looked at me and I said, God wants you to give your life to him. He broke down right there and started to cry. I was more shocked than he was. I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord and discipling him. And it just, it just blew me away. God will point out people to us. He'll say, call that person. Find out what's going on. Go talk to them. Tell them about me. Ananias had a great measure of reluctance to go to talk to Saul. Would you agree? He'd heard about him. Way about Jerusalem. He says, no way. Lord, he is just persecuted your people. Now he's up here. 
You want me to go talk to who? But he obeys, doesn't he? He goes to Saul and actually commissions Saul. God uses Ananias to commission Saul into the ministry. Look at this in chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. He actually commissions Saul into the gospel ministry. And for Ananias, Saul now will be no longer a cause of suffering. But he would tell Saul how much he would suffer as Paul the apostle. And again, listen to Paul's own testimony. Later in his life, after his conversion, about his own personal suffering, in chapter 1 of 1 first, Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about his experience as an apostle. And he says that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the profession, uh, procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We're fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. Now he's, he's almost saying these things tongue in cheek to the Corinthians because they thought they really had it all together spiritually. We're weak, but you are strong. You're honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we are brutally treated. We are homeless, we work hard with our own hands. And when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. He's talking about what Christians should be like. He's talking to the Corinthians of what it means to be a Christian. And the apostles were the ones who were kind of to set the pace, if you will. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, again, his apostleship has been questioned. And so he says, those who are questioning us, are they, are they servants of Christ? He says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I, I shouldn't be having to say these things, but, but let me tell you, I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Here's Paul, 
Jesus had told him, he said, I must show you how much you must suffer. Who would sign up? Who would sign up for that? And he talks about it. And then in chapter 12, he had been given a great vision. He'd, he'd been taken up to the third heaven. He'd, he'd been shown things that he can't even express in words. He says, and to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You would think that Paul the apostle would be privileged and be protected from these things. No, 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 no. He's the prototype. Suffering. Jesus said, because they persecute me, they'll persecute you. We're not immune from trials. We're not immune from tribulation. We're not immune from suffering. And his suffering would begin in only a few days after his surrender to Jesus. And it would continue throughout his life to the point where he would ultimately lose his head, presumably in Rome. Beloved, faith in Jesus Christ brings great blessings. Would you agree? But it also brings great suffering too. Why is that suffering in our life? So that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So that our faith is grown and matures, Peter tells us. Trials and suffering God uses for good purposes, his purposes in our life. It's easy for us to kick against the goads. It's easy for us to go our own way and do our own thing. But when you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is for his purposes and his purposes alone. We say, in effect, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I'm yours. Use me for your will. Don't shrink back. Press in. God calls us to commitment. He doesn't call us to comfort. You recall he was busting his saints out of their comfort zones, out of Jerusalem, because he had told them, you will be my witnesses. Go. They wouldn't go. They sat down. It was too comfortable. And so he brings persecution to bust them out of Jerusalem. He doesn't mean for us to be comfortable. He means for us to evidence our commitment to him by serving him. And he promises to be with us through our suffering and through our hardships. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God, where are you? Where are you? I am right here. In fact, I'm inside of you to strengthen you. Trust me. Stand firm. Don't faint. Don't quit. Don't give up. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
And he's promised us, as he did Paul the Apostle, that his grace would be sufficient. My grace will be sufficient. You may get the waz. You may think that whatever his grace is, it's not sufficient. It is sufficient. Right? His grace is sufficient. Thank you, Lord. Your grace is sufficient. There isn't a single person in this room this morning that isn't facing some, some tragedy, some difficulty, some health issue, some problem, something that causes great consternation to you, some relational issue. His grace is sufficient. We don't throw our hands up and quit. We don't bail. We stand firm. Philip and the Ethiopian, Ananias and Saul, their lives and their accounts illustrate the truth that the transformed life demands loyalty and it demands service to the Lord Jesus. I are a Christian. He has changed me. And my response to that is loyalty to him and service to him. And lastly, after Ananias prayed for Saul, he received his sight. He was filled with the Holy Ghost and he got baptized. Remember the Ethiopian got baptized right after he got saved? Saul gets baptized. What's the big deal about baptism? Why do we insist on baptism? Why should we be baptized? Does baptism save us? No. What's the big deal about baptism? It's our testimony. It's our testimony. It's my testimony. I am one with Christ. As Paul says in Romans 6, I died with him, I was buried with him, and raised to new life with him. I'm identified with Jesus Christ in his body, the church. It's my public statement, my public initiation into the church, the body of Christ, my identification with him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you do call us to loyalty to you and to your service. You assure us that your grace will be sufficient for us. Lord, you direct our steps. You give us wisdom where we may lack. All we have to do is ask. We thank you for just the richness of your provision and for your spirit who lives in us. Thank you for the confidence that you never leave us, you never forsake us. We love you this morning, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way in us.
On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.